I rose since I was 40 years old with my grandpa. It's like walking and it's like to ride a bicycle because by your you can cross the city very quickly also if you want and uh, leaving Venice from the best point of view because Venice uh, was uh, projected to be road no? and all the canals uh, the... you have the most important point of view and very important you can enjoy the environment, the, the lagoon of Venice. Hi, this is Sarah with another episode of Materially Speaking, where artists and artisans tell their stories through the materials they choose. Sound specialist Mike Axon and I are in Venice for a special series, meeting three young artisans who learnt their skills over many years and are now bringing a fresh energy to the community. They all have a keen eye on repair, reuse and sustainability. First we're meeting Piero Dri, a Rema who makes oars and oarlocks, or as the Italians call them, forcoli. Venice, of course, is a world without cars. Water laps at our side as we walk and as we pause at the top of a bridge, wide waterways stretch to our left and right and palaces loom high, each marked with striped canal poles. There's a boat loaded with building supplies holding wood, wheelbarrows and a cement mixer. Another, with a raised mechanical platform, is awaiting a coffin. There are slow boats with workmen chatting, slick, fast boats with tourists taking photos and, of course, gondolas. Piero's vibrant personality has earned him the name of the mad forcoli maker, so his workshop is called Il Forcolaio Matto. As we arrive, he's opening up his shop hooking flower boxes onto his windowsill and leaning a red and white striped oar against the wall. Inside are workbenches and saws, wood samples and glue, and centrally a large wooden clamp on which the forcoli is shaped. There's a healthy deposit of wood shavings on the floor. From the ceiling hang varnished oars and displayed in one window are decorative forcoli and a variety of gorgeous woods which hold their owner's art objects. I asked Piero to introduce himself. My name is uh, Piero Dri, is a short name, <laughs> and I am an ore maker. In Venetian, we call this craftwork Remer, Remer because Remo is the ore. And it's one of the most ancient jobs still active in Venice because officially it's born in uh, 13 and 7, and everything in Venice was based on uh, rowing. No? So the, the ore makers were very, very important also in the past. Uh, they made uh, the, the big ores for the galeras, for the, for the big ships uh, built uh, in the Arsenale area. No? You know that the Venetians were able to make one uh, ship per day. And because uh, the Arsenale is, is the, the first example of uh, working chain, Everybody had a, a specific skill, a specific uh, rule in the arsenale. So if you think that uh, every galea had 40 oars, as long as this room, you can imagine there were a lot of people working there 
and a lot of ore makers. And then there were another kind of ore makers working outside the Arsenale and around the, the city of Venice and producing the smaller ores and the forcola, so the, the, the ore locks for the traditional smaller Venetian boats. The forcola is uh, something special in Venice because it existed only in Venice. It is the Venetian ore lock, the row lock for, uh, for the Venetian traditional boats. Is the wooden object where the gondolier, the rower, places the oar to drive the boat, to control the boat in all the directions. No? What is a sandolo? Sandolo is a very simple boat, very used by the people in the past to, to move around Venice, also to carry something. And there are different models of sandolo depending on where it was built. Sometimes uh, in Burano, so the, the uh, sandolo Buraneo from Burano is bigger than the normal sandolo. Usually it can go from six meters and a half till uh, nine, eight meters, eight meters and a half. And uh, you can see it uh, for touristical use, uh, the black one, uh, the black one boat uh, that is not um, a gondola. No? Sometimes you can see a smaller and flatter boat and the rower stays inside of the boat, not over the boat, uh, like on the gondola. This is uh, is like a sort of this. This is Mascareta. This is a very light model. What is it made of? This is a model in uh, large. In large. Okay. Large. But usually this kind of boats are in a spruce wood, large wood, and uh, the, the, the skeleton is in uh, oak or elm. Uh, so a bit uh, stronger. No? Uh, nowadays, the boat maker uses uh, usually plywood and uh, marine plywood, obviously, for the bottom and the side, okay. also on the gondola. So you can take the, the boat also out of the water for a long time. Instead, in the past, it was impossible because with the sun, without water, it cracks, uh, it dries a lot and it, it, it can crack. No? So the boat must be in the water in the past. No? Cool. Well, can we go back? Are you, where were you born? Here in Venice in 1983. And uh, I always uh, lived in Venice. I rose since I was four years old with my grandpa. It's like walking and it's like to ride a bicycle because by your you can cross the city very quickly also if you want and uh, leaving Venice from the best point of view because Venice uh, was uh, projected to be road, no? And all the canals, uh, the... you have the most important point of view. And very important, you can enjoy the environment, the lagoon of Venice. I, I remember also during the, the teenage, when I, when I was teenager, sometimes I escaped away from, <laughs> from home and always by rowing, no? And I, I went to the lagoon, uh, trying to sleep uh, in the night uh, away from everybody uh, because I, I like to, 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 to be with myself in silence uh, and uh, with the nature and so on. So it's a very important part of me, of course. I studied then uh, at university in Padova, 40 kilometers from Venice, but always uh, coming and uh, <laughs> going and coming every day, you know? 
so uh, I always lived in Venice. Now, since three, four years, I live in Murano Island. What did you study at Padua? I studied astronomy. I am graduated in astronomy. And during the last uh, two years of university, I began to, to feel something strange in me and I needed to come back to the real Venice because, uh, in my opinion, if you live uh, closer to, to the Venetian soul, you can love Venice. If you live uh, looking only at the, the bad um, sides of living in Venice, because living in Venice is also very difficult sometimes, at the end, uh, you risk to hate the city, no? and uh, uh, many people go away. So I felt that I was losing something. I was losing this uh, very strong relationship with the city. And I felt uh, the need to come back to my passion. That's rowing, that's wood. And the only way to, to put them together was to learn or to make boats. And uh, at the end, uh, I, I started to, to make four colas and oars. Was it in your family? Do you have craftsmen in your family? Is it a family tradition? No, it's not a family tradition. My brother is four years younger than me. He didn't study at the university and he worked after the, the, the secondary school directly on a boat yard making gondolas. So for 12 years he made gondolas. And so I don't know if I, if I would like to, to follow him or to to learn to make gondolas too. But at the end, uh, I understood that wasn't my way. And in this work, uh, I found uh, the best uh, uh, mirror of my character because making forcola, I can put together the technical elements, the technical de details, because forcola has to be functional as first but I'm also free to express myself uh, from the artistical point of view. So I feel free to put together these two elements that are the same elements of my character. I'm very precise for some things uh, and I studied the scientific uh, subjects. No? So in this way, this is my, the, my thinking way. But at the same time, I constantly need to be free. Is Venice a free sort of society, place to live? Uh, not for the 100%. It's not easy to uh, live in a sort of bowl. I, I don't know. Sometimes I, I think it's, uh, it's right to build a, a bowl, your, your personal sphere in the, in the Venetian society. Sometimes uh, I think that it's completely wrong because uh, it, it's very fundamental, the, the relationship between the humans <laughs> and, uh, and so on. But nowadays to live in Venice, you need to have your balance and to go on to look to some details that the normal life tends to delete. So this is the challenge. We live in a very touristical city uh, that the Venetian environment is very weak. And if you love to live in Venice, you love Venice. And so you must do something for it. And you have a lot of family around you, bump into your brother. And... Yeah, yeah, I have all my family. I have uh, three brothers younger than me, parents uh, and uh, my girlfriend. Uh, 
everything. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm lucky because I go on living my family dimension, even if we are uh, four brothers during the years at the end, no? Uh, many times we go to the mountains all together. And so it's a luck for me. Do the others work in... So one is a uh, makes gondolas? Not anymore. Now it's just a wooden wood carpenter now. Always craft work, but uh, just with wood. And in Venice it's uh, very uh, funny because everything in the houses uh, is uh, tailor-made, no? Because the angles of the houses, they are never 90 degrees or uh, everything, no? So if you order a new kitchen, you have to call a, a carpenter and not go to Ikea, Ikea, and so, yes, it's, it's fun. Another is a flower, a flower designer, florist. Oh, He's studying flower designer. And the fourth is an um, uh, environmental uh, engineer. Is finishing the, the studies in Padova. Are there any other people who make the Orlocks? Yeah, we, I have my colleagues. Uh, we are four uh, workshops in, uh, in Venice and five people because uh, we are all alone uh, except uh, one uh, workshop where they are two. And we are friends because uh, Venice is uh, very small. For some details, we have different ways to, to look to, to our job. Uh, of course, there's my master, uh, still active, Paolo Brandolisio. And uh, I recognize, uh, of course, that I learned from him. So <laughs> my personal view is uh, part uh, is also the, uh, his, his view no? on the, the forcola, on the, on, on the craft work in general. But I'm uh, developing during the years uh, my personal uh, style, maybe, or uh, because when you are artisan, your character uh, comes to, to, to the final object. How did you meet your master? Mm, in uh, 2006, uh, my girlfriend of oh, the epoch <laughs> pushed me <laughs> in, in his uh, workshop because I was looking for something to connect me again to the real Venice. I went inside this workshop and I, I asked if uh, there was uh, the possibility to, to learn. The answer was not, no. And so I turned, <laughs> turned around, I was uh, uh, get out of the workshop. And uh, while I was closing the door, my master said to me, but if you want to try some hours, some day, and so I, I started to learn to, to touch the, the woods, uh, to impress of my, in my mind the, the four-color shape. I remember that when I uh, went home in the evening, I tried to draw it, uh, to, to fix it in my mind. And uh, day by day, we both understood that we could evolve this very particular relationship. And it's another luck. I think I had because the relationship between the master and the pupil is something very, very particular that uh, this society is uh, losing, in my opinion. And it's something very, very important because you have to respect your master, but an, a nice master uh, is able to respect the pupil always because the workshop becomes uh, your personal home. So being a master is not simple because you have to share it and uh, you need uh, 
uh, a guy, a person who wants to share it with you and respecting it. So it's not so simple to find. But when you find the, the balance uh, and uh, the agreement, uh, it's, uh, it's perfect. And how long did you work with or learn with him before you set up on your own? I've been there uh, almost seven years, six, seven years. And uh, after four or five years, you have a 360 degrees view of the work. And then, of course, you have the final step. That's when you are alone in front of the long. <laughs> because uh, the first steps uh, of making a forcola are always made by the, by the master no in in his workshop because he has to decide some details when you are alone you have to make this last step if you pass it you have the work in your hands definitely so apart from technical skills what did you learn from your master i think that the most important things was the the, the behavior the relationship with the, um, the client because in venice uh, working for example for the gondoliers you have to joke always because joking you are working. I don't know. Uh, Sometimes I go rowing with my boat uh, and uh, my master has a, has a small boat too. And so rowing around Venice, uh, uh, some gondolier tell, hey, I have an oar to repair. I have a forklift to repair. So it's a, a strange work because it's part of the city, no? And you must be faithful for the, the master uh, teachings. Because at the end, they are the real way to, to reach the, the aim and the goal, no? And so um, this behavior to, to be always faithful is uh, very important. You're still in touch with your master. You would yeah, ask his yeah, advice. Yeah. Yes, of course, we are friends. We always um, share messages and so on. And for a long period, if I had some doubts, uh, any doubts, uh, I always asked to him uh, before making because you never finish to, to learn. I love the fact that the gondolas will tell you, know, you'll just get the business because you're out there rowing. Who else are your clients? Who else do you work for? I make oars for uh, all Venice, <laughs> all the Venice Rowing Society. I'd like to go on making the traditional work at the service of the city. So I make oars for rowing because I believe in rowing in Venice. No? So I work for gondoliers but for all the other Venetians who row. For the racers, because we have a sort of rowing championship during the summer season. And uh, uh, sometimes I make oars uh, and uh, forcolas also for the gondoliers around the world. There are some rowing clubs uh, in Europe, but also in the States. Uh, last year I shipped some oars uh, to, um, to Perth in Australia because other guys um, fell in love with Venice uh, with this uh, particular rowing style. I wanted to find out what different types of oars there are, because presumably what a gondola uses, is a gondolier uses, is not what you use when you race. It's like a, a pair of shoes, a pair of shoes, because uh, uh, you have different kind of shoes for every occasion. And uh, specifically, we have different oars uh, for different Venetian boats. According to the size of the boat uh, and to the use uh, you do of that specific boat. And uh, uh, when you cut, when you, when you are making an oar, you 
have to meet the preferences of the rower and because somebody prefers a softer or somebody an harder one and sometimes uh, an heavier one for the windy days for example and uh, there are some differences of course an ore becomes your personal ore after some months you you use it you go on using it because um, and in this sense it's like a pair of shoes no because when they are new they are for everybody no but with the daily use they become your shoes no they take your uh, walking uh, style no and the same for the ore so it's very very important to uh, to take care of the ore and uh, to repair it so part of my work is always to the, the repairing uh, operation and uh, I go to, to take off the broken or, or the worn part of the ore and I replace it with other slices of wood. I make again the, the right line for the hydrodynamical move. When you row a certain way, uh-huh. you use different bits of the ore. Yeah. The Venetian ore is very complicated, if you want, because uh, during the, the Venetian rowing style, the paddle has always to be under the waterline if you are rowing alone, because uh, you are rowing only on the right part, uh, on the right side of the boat, you know? So when you push forward, the boat tends to go to the left, and then you have to correct the, the, the direction in some way, you know? And the way is on the coming back move with a paddle under the waterline you turn it on the other side and uh, you go breaking a bit making the the opposite move respect to when you are pushing what are the choices of woods for oars for oars it's a difficult question because since 60s more or less 1960 the oars are uh, not in beach wood anymore like in the past because venetians uh, took the, the beach uh, trees from the closest mountains here, or from uh, Istria, Dalmatia, all the, the eastern part of Europe. And so we, we glue spruce wood of the finest quality without uh, branch, uh, branches, knots. Uh, knots. knots. And uh, the two blades, uh, we, we call them the, the knives, because the, the two um, edges of the, the paddle go cutting the, the water, no? So for us are the cortei, the knives. And these two elements are in beech wood uh, nowadays too, because uh, beech wood is more resistant and uh, when with the paddle you go against uh, another boat or the wall of a palace uh, <laughs> around the, the canals in Venice, it lasts uh, more, more time. The length of these two knives is not similar, but one is shorter than the other. One, because uh, you have to recognize the ore to be used on the left or on the right side of the boat. So that the shorter knife goes always toward the back of the boat. And varnish, what is it covered with? There are a couple of coats uh, of oil, linseed oil. And then uh, three, usually three coats of varnish uh, for uh, water. I usually put uh, the first coat uh, with the polyurethanic uh, varnish 
and uh, the second ones uh, with a um, synthetic yeah it's always synthetic it's not <laughs> it's not natural varnish it's impossible to I don't know, I can imagine. yeah no the, the, the research in the water uh, based varnish uh, is uh, very active but uh, for the marine world uh, is very difficult nowadays to have a perfect plating for uh, a resistant one water resistant part of my job is also to fit perfectly the forcola on every specific uh, boat and so it must be a very strong object and uh, the different surfaces of the object uh, allow the gondolier to place the oar on different positions to control the boat always. So there are, for example, in the case of the forcola for the gondola, there are six, seven different positions where the gondolier can place the, the oar. And so when I make a forcola, there are some measures to take. There are some angles to consider because uh, also the boats are always different. Uh, the gondola seems to be all similar, but they are handmade too, no? And so every time they are different, uh, depending on who made them. And so many times I have to go, when I finish the forcola, I have to go to the yard. When the gondola is finished, I uh, fit the leg of the forcola, we call the leg, and the forcola, the lower part uh, that we fix inside of the boat. No? And it has to be perfect because without... Uh, any wedge uh, or uh, any screw, the forcola has to remain fixed. But at the same time, every morning and every evening, the gondolier take it uh, off from the, the gondola and he replaces it uh, in, a, in a secret box or uh, at home for, for the night. Why so, is that? To, to preserve the forcola from the night, uh, from the weather, bad weather conditions, for example but also against the, the steel of the, of the forcola. Because without forcola on a boat, on a Venetian boat, you are completely lost. Because, uh, for example, here in Gran Canal, the, the water is quite calm, but in San Marco Bay, in front of San Marco, there are a lot of waves due to the motorboats, due to the wind. And so the legs, the gondolier's legs, will be a bit lower and the forcola will be lower, will be uh, a bit different from the forcola used here in Santa Sofia, in Gran Canal. And so there are different elements to consider. So the forcola, what woods do you make forcola from? To make a forcola, use uh, um, for the 95% uh, of the forcolas, walnut wood. Generally, uh, you can use a fruit tree. Uh, and so for this reason, sometimes I make a cherry wood forcola or a pear wood. Sometimes you can use, uh, if you find it, a apple or a maple, this kind of wood because, uh, but walnut is the best because uh, we need very huge uh, trees and uh, a strong uh, grain. But the fruit trees... Uh, <laughs> the fruit trees, okay. The fruit trees have the, um, the particularity to uh, have a, a very smooth grain. And so when uh, the forcola warms out, uh, 
it becomes very very smooth okay without uh, having um, a big uh, uh, hardness difference between the winter and the summer grain it's because the the winter and the summer grain have two different uh, hardness in the case of fruit trees uh, is not uh, is every always the same and so they all can worn the the forcola very homogeneously and it uh, remains uh, very smooth what you're saying is that some woods most woods have a different texture in the winter than they do in the summer yes because uh, when you look to uh, to the ring of the of a tree the um, usually the um, the darker ones are the uh, the moment in the year when the tree grows uh, uh, less than the other it grows more and uh, you will have a softer uh, wood huh? so usually i need uh, 60 70 centimeters uh, of diameter and they are around uh, one uh, one century more or less 100 years sometimes 100 years 20 or 80 years this is the size so more or less we can say one centimeter per year so 90 percent walnut the others are some sort of fruit yes yes usually um, due to my need to have a big uh, trees uh, it's not so simple to find a big apple okay so uh, sometimes I can I can find a nice cherry wood. If I find it, I can buy it. But the seasoning, for example, of cherry is a bit more difficult than the seasoning, the natural seasoning of walnut, because cherry tends to crack uh, more than walnut. And I need uh, always uh, at least uh, two three years to dry wood the wood. And in this period, with the with the dry air stream on the usually on this surface of the of the log, it can crack for uh, 15, 20 centimeters. No, so this is the reason, for example, why I always go cutting higher uh, blocks than the the real one. So you need a bigger chunk of wood than you need for the four color to allow for a little bit of wastage exactly. at the top when it's exactly. seasoned. Yeah. Well, they're very beautiful. They look a bit like an arm with a elbow bent. How tall yeah. are they? It can go from 50 centimeters till uh, one meter. For example, the front row in position on a gondola has a very small model of four color because the gondolier is inside. For the gondola model, for example, the difference uh, height range between uh, a short and a tall man is uh, around uh, seven, eight centimeters. If you are one meter ninety, you will have uh, fifty-four centimeters high for cola. Sometimes it's fifty-four, sometimes it's forty-seven. Okay, so this is the range for the tailor-made. Do they come to your shop? Do the gondoliers come in and say, hey, do a little of this, do a little of that? Yes, yes. Uh, usually, uh, very often, they have maybe an old forcola uh, to correct. Uh, speaking about the, the setup of the forcola, so sometimes they say, uh, I prefer to have it a bit uh, forward 
a bit uh, more angled uh, and this is the, the the secret of every craft work at the end because it's always a compromise a balance between the artisan and the uh, client you know can we talk about the artistic side you said you have a freedom making the four color yes what do you do to make a, a thin four color okay because uh, my master made very thin for uh, and uh, it was uh, his style for less more or less with my daily work i modify a bit because uh, i don't like a for so much thin another colleague in my opinion makes for too much uh, heavy um something baroque and also on the lines, because sometimes, for example, here, it goes straight. This is a formula made by me four years ago. This line sometimes can be straight. Other uh, masters can make it a bit uh, uh, round here. And so at the end, you have this sensation of a heavier uh, shape, in my opinion. Or this curve uh, sometimes is to pick or here on the head because we associate the folklore to a human body no so you have the leg the elbow and the, the the head with the two noses the bite because it bites the oar and the ear to to break to stop the gondola here there's this uh, channel here that's the my master's master signature in his workshop so when I opened uh, here uh, my workshop, I asked to, to my master if I could make it also here, no? Because the, the school is the same. So I always uh, make this channel as a signature of the, the folklore. This is a carving symbol uh, of the gondolier. And so I carved it uh, here to recognize the, to customize the folklore. It's an, it's a unique piece. I made another one for a, a client uh, in uh, San Diego. No, San Diego, in uh, North Carolina. And uh, I make a, a special edition one for um, her husbands. And uh, with a 61, because uh, it was the 61st uh, birthday of the husband. I joined a contest with this one. I don't know <laughs> the, the result. Uh, yet, but uh, the theme uh, it was the strength of nature, no, and uh, the beauty of nature. So I started from the rubbish of the plastics uh, that I collect in Santerasmo Island in the lagoon, and then from the garbage, the, the nature grows up, and you uh, find all the different plants of the Venetian lagoon, no, to express the the, the strength of nature. This uh, a new a reinterpretation of the forcola and in this way the forcola for me is the symbol of rowing so is is the symbol of a sustainable venice but it's also the symbol of the strength of nature so the environment in this sense no so you sell these forcola as artistic items works yes, of, of art yes mm -hmm. yes i i place the forcola on a standing and I sell it uh, as a sculpture. 
there's no difference be between the sculpture and the forcola to be used because I want to sell the real forcola. Uh, something similar to the forcola for me is not a forcola. So you can put it at home, but in the future, if you want to, <laughs> to buy a Venetian boat, you could also use it. Do you imagine that you may teach this craft to somebody else? Of course, this is uh, something that I, I have to think uh, about very soon because uh, after these 10 years, I'm starting to understand that I have to, to make a, another step in my career, if you want, in my, in my life, in my way to look to my job. And it's very, very important to teach to somebody this one and to it's very difficult because um, sometimes you are at the limit between working, running alone and have enough work for two people. But uh, it's very difficult because you have to prepare something to do also for him that is learning. So you have to invest a lot of time and uh, uh, make a revolution on your working process. But I think I, I must do in uh, in few years. <laughs> do it. That's Thank fantastic. You. Grazie. Thank you so much. That was so brilliant. So thanks to Piero Dri. You can discover more about him on his website, ilforcalaimato.it or find him on Instagram at ilforcalaimato. And thanks to you for listening. As with all episodes, you can find photographs of the work discussed on our website, materiallyspeaking.com, or on Instagram. If you're enjoying Materially Speaking, subscribe to our newsletter on our website so we can let you know when the next episode goes live. Wow.